I'm Chef Attila Bollock, and you're listening to Ingredient Insiders. This is Ingredient Insiders. I'm John Magazzino. And I'm Andrea Parkins. On each episode of Ingredient Insiders, we will be talking with chefs and cookbook authors about their favorite ingredients. We'll then be speaking to the producers of those ingredients. We talk about their history, how they're made, and why chefs love using them in their restaurants. This is going to be a fun episode, Andrea. We are talking about paprika. Woo! Do you like paprika, John? Not only do I like paprika, I'm going to say I love paprika, but I'm very specific about the paprika that I love. What do you like to use typically? Okay, so let's talk about paprika from what I know of the spice. There is the Hungarian style. The hot. Which is hot. Mm Mm-hmm. And I typically buy it and it's in like a white and red and green can. Yep, tin. And then more recently, so I used to use that if I was making chicken paprikash. Paprikash? How do you say that? Paprikash? Paprikash. And I would, you know, I sprinkle it on my deviled eggs and things like that. Mm -hmm. A few years ago, I got introduced to this very special and what I consider incredible paprika from Spain called pimenton. De la Vara. Am I saying that right? It sounded beautiful. Yes, pimenton. So tell us what it is. So there's two types. Mm-hmm. And I buy them. They come in little red tins. And they're really well-priced. Yeah. In fact, I was in Spain a few weeks ago. I bought a couple of tins for next to nothing yeah. at a this lot of gourmet market. Bar. Yeah, and they're, they're beautiful gifts. If you ever go to Spain, mm-hmm. you want to bring back your friends a nice gift, go to a nice little specialty grocery store. And literally for a couple of bucks, you get these great looking tins, and what's inside is even better. So there's smoked style, which mm-hmm. they call dulce or sweet. Yep. I guess they're both smoked. And then there's picante or hot. Like a spicy version. Yeah. And let me tell you, that spicy version, use it very sparingly because it is very hot. A little goes like a long way. Like if you're going to be starting to do recipes with pimenton de la vara, I personally favor the, the dulce, the sweet one. Which isn't necessarily sweet. It's just a nice There's smoky not any flavor, heat right? Against it, yeah. Um, I would say that both of these products last me a very long time mm-hmm. in the pantry. And as we all know, we should be changing our spices out kind of regularly. Although I will say that I've had them in my pantry for a year or longer, and they work wonderfully. Um, and now that I've got these backup new tins, I'm very excited nice. for my stash. Um, I typically get it from. What happens is, you know, we, you know, we buy it from Chef's Warehouse, yeah, and then it's a we sell it in one pound tins, yeah. So it's a lot of paprika for you know two people to use, yeah. So I tend to, you know, have to get a new one every so often, yeah, because I want it to be fresh. You should give it to your friends. I should here. You can have my subpar yeah. paprika. No, or you should just like dole it out to your friends, like in little bags like or little make little mm-hmm. jars for paprika the holidays. dealer. Yeah, got I it. I think that's a great idea. Nice. So this is going to be a really wonderful episode, Andrea. We are talking with an amazing chef from Los Angeles and one of the foremost spice experts from New York City. Yeah, we're speaking with Chef Attila Bolak from Barton G's. Yeah, that's such a, like, a unique restaurant experience. Oh, it's a crazy! John. It's like going into like a, a mad scientist mm-hmm. laboratory for dinner. Very theatrical, incredible experience. Yeah, I highly recommend if you're in Los Angeles, go to Barton G's. And then we're going to be talking with Lior Lev Sakars from La Boite des Pices, or just La Boite these days, which is a spice company. Lior is the spice guy for 
all of the Michelin three-star chefs in America. Like, I don't think there's one of them he doesn't work with. He creates their own special blends. He's a, he's just an expert on spices. He's been a chef in New York for many years. Yeah, he's traveling the globe to find the best of the best for the best chefs. Yeah, so this is going to be a great episode talking all about paprika. I can't wait, John. This episode is in partnership with The Chef's Warehouse and produced by Gotham Production Studios. All right, we are in LA, and uh, it's another—it's a sunny day in LA, Andrea. It's a beautiful day in LA, John. And I am so happy to be here. Are you happy to be in LA? Yeah, there's something about it. It's you know everyone's kind of smiley and, and happy. And we were listening to the song "I Love LA" by Randy Newman this morning, and I do—I love LA. You were cheering like you were really excited. And we have an awesome chef here too, uh, Attila Bullock. Yeah, hey. And yes, he's from Barton G. Are you from LA? No, I'm a transfer. Where'd you uh, grow up? I grew up in New York, actually. Oh, you like us, city. New Yorkers. Yeah, New York. Uh, 12 years transferred now. Did you grow up in the city itself? I grew up right in Manhattan, yep. What nice. part of Upper East, Upper, Upper East Side? Upper East Where? Side. I grew up on like East 80s. Oh, that's wow. cool. Yeah, so we could probably touch. How long have you been there? Uh, five years. Okay, so it's probably changed a lot. Um, I've been gone from there about 12 now. Okay. Um, nice. Yeah, my... My father-in-law grew up there in that neighborhood as well. So we have, you know, a lot of deep roots there. So you're the executive chef of Barton G. Los Angeles. Right. That First of all, we'll, we'll talk about Barton G., the man, the myth, the legend too. But how did you get into cooking? Oh, I was wee young lad. Yeah. Um, I was in high school, actually. Uh, I had a girlfriend. I was probably trying to impress. Yeah. And her dad was constantly... He was a restaurant guy. Actually, I think he, we worked for Charlie Palmer for, for some time. And um, I, I, I kind of just fell into it. I was like, you know, I really want to impress this girl. I know food. Like, I mean, you know, she was off going off to get like a really intensive summer externship at like a financial firm or something. And like that wasn't me at all. I was like, you know, I know food. I've got another buddy um, whose parents actually ran like one of the most premier French restaurants in New York City for a long time called Le Caraval. Oh, yeah. Um, and so I hit him up and I was like, Hey, what do you, what do you think if I, uh, if I just hung out there this summer? And he was like, I think you get your butt kicked pretty much consistently. Uh, I'm going to interrupt because he, of course he's like, he, 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 you're talking about one of the Jamais, uh, children. Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, Rita and Andre, um, and yes, of course, uh, Patrick is a good friend of mine. So. Okay, good. He's, is he the one who started Sweet Greens? Tender Greens? Um, Nicholas is one of the founding partners for that. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. For Sweet Greens? For sweet green, yeah, nice. yeah. Um, that's really funny. So he is kind of the person who got you into the food business. He walked me right in that door, or his, his mom did actually. Walked me right in the Rita. door, and it was just in. It was a, it was an unimaginable world at the time. Yeah, right. Um, the organization, the organized chaos, as, as we know it in the, in the kitchen. Um, there must legendary have, restaurant. Legendary restaurant. I mean, there must have been twenty five people in that kitchen, if I recall correctly. Yeah, you know, some twenty odd years ago now, but. Um, and, and sure enough, they put me right to work. No questions. You say, oh, okay. You know, extern, let's go. Um, I was handed a petty knife um, and a task of finally slicing some canapé or building a small tartlet for hours on end, you know, and um, that was my introduction. What a place to start. Yeah. Really. And then, so, and I'm sure you had a lot of stops along the way before you got to Los Angeles. Where else did you work? Um, 
I think I took my second internship at a Jonathan Waxman place downtown called Washington Park. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, another staple. I think it was his first like venture out of California where I really felt like he, you know, looking back at it, he was really grounded and he had a, he had a great clientele base there. Um, you know, I'd go home, tell my parents like, oh, hey, we served on this person this evening and this person and she'd be amazed by the fact. Um, uh, and then, you know, coming out of high school, I got in this, I got the sense that maybe, maybe I should go to college like all the rest of the folks and, and, and figure this out, but kept like greasy, greasy spoon jobs along the way and was a scoop and ice cream or whatever else. And, um, Wait, so you were working at La Caravelle when you were in high school? I think I was like 15 or 16 when I was over there. <laughs> That's Whoa. pretty cool. Yeah. What an experience. Um, yeah. And then and then as, you know, I, we went to college. Probably did like three or four semesters until I was like, okay, well, maybe maybe this isn't for me. Maybe I do want to be back in there. Um, and then I landed at a place. I was like, I'm getting back in the kitchen. I'm going to do this full time. I'm going to commit. You know, maybe, maybe I'll go down. Maybe I'll go to school sometime down the line or not. But... Um, I landed in a neighborhood place right there on 81st and 2nd uh, at, at a, a gentleman. The, the place's name was Spigolo, and he was a uh, a seasoned Michael Romano Union Square guy. And it just he opened up so many doors, you know, different way of thinking. You know, I'd never experienced – I mean, I had some, some education in formal French dining, but not really because I was the guy cutting the – you know, the tiny canapes and petit fours and whatever, you know, I didn't get a full sense of what it meant to be in that kitchen, I felt like. But like here, small, tight-knit kitchen, 25 seats, three guys doing 100, 150 covers at times and slinging really incredible food, you know, as influenced by his his background. Um, and that's when I really I really got the bug, I feel like. So w- when did you end up in L.A.? Um, I ended up in L.A. in 2011. So you've been here a good decade. Yeah. Yep. Uh, my wife and I, an industry person as well, um, just felt like we had enough of New York. I being born and raised there, her having been there for about 10 years. Um, and we were looking for a change and something new, something different. And we looked at the landscape and we said, okay, LA's quite that, um, but it has an interesting landscape for food and ever-growing one. It's a lot of incredible places. Um, and I ended up landing actually with a New York guy. <laughs> I ended yeah. up landing with uh, Scott Conan's team. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, at Scarpetta? At Scarpetta in the Montage Hotel. Um, we had so many mutual friends just from, I think, Freddie Freddie Vargas, the chef at the time, had, had just been here a couple of years, um, maybe like one or two, and had trained over there. And, and um, I'd never, you know, never worked for a hotel before, but, you know, I was floored by the space. Um I was floored by just the operation overall. And yeah. Then, and then knowing the style of food a bit, knowing... You know, Scott's food, having dined there, having known that circle of people, just kind of made sense to land safely in a New York Mm -hmm. kind of vibe here in a new Familiar territory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think LA is the best food city in America. You can go deep here on any type of Asian cuisine, whether it's Thai or Chinese or Japanese um, or Vietnamese for that matter. And, And I'm talking about the general Southern California area when I say LA. And then- talking about Mexican, I mean, you know, obviously we're not too far from uh, the border of Mexico itself, where endless opportunities to eat incredible Mexican, and not just Mexican food, you can get into the different regions of Mexico. And then you also, I would say, like the bounty of raw material here is second to none, certainly in the United States or North America. So if you talk about like farm produce, 
and farmers markets. Absolutely. So when you kind of like jumble all of that together and then, you know, there's history here with chefs like Josiah Citrin and Michael Chimarusti and Wolfgang Puck and Nancy Silverton. Mm-hmm. And you just start to put all of this together. And those those chefs all have a lot of other great young chefs that emerged from underneath them. But tell me a city that's better. You, we'll, yeah. I'll have the conversation about New York. I love New York. I'm a New Yorker. But L.A. is, in my book, hands down number one. I have to agree with that. I think the culmination of all those elements make it pretty undeniable, right? Each of those could stand on their own right and compete. But when you consider all of those together, it's like, I'm with you. I'm in the same boat. I think LA is the best place. I mean, we went and had tacos for lunch today. Incredible. I will say it was the best carnita taco that I've ever had in my life. And we could go to 10 to 20 other places. And I think you might feel similarly about it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it was... It was a, an amazing bite. She had so. three large I ate three tacos, tacos okay. with uh, and then I ate chicharron a half a for the record. Pastrami sandwich. Oh, yeah, and then she wanted to go to Langer's. And then, I mean, even that, you like talk about what you, a lot of people would put like the New York moniker in front of deli. Los Angeles has some amazing really good deli. Jewish delis. All right, but we're not here to talk no. about tacos and deli, are we? No, Attila, <laughs> what do you want to talk about today? Let's talk about paprika. Ooh. So tell us why you want to talk about paprika. Oh, you know, it's got, it just hits home in a very personal way. You know, I, I, we could have talked about, you know, all the culmination of fine things, you know, we could have talked about foie gras or truffles or caviar or whatever, but I feel like paprika is one of those things that anyone can relate to. I'm down. It's Are like you the, Hungarian? I'm Hungarian. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, here we go. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like that ubiquitous, just about everyone's got it, right? But yeah. whether you fancy yourself a gourmand or just the average cook who's going to go to your pantry and grab some of this up for like one of those like a little bit of this, a little bit of that yeah. kind of situations. Or if you know to use it as the focal point of your food, um, then, you know, you've graduated to like a part, partly paprika expert. But I want I want to dive deep on paprika, but I want to go back to. But I want to know when Attila uh, was first kind of exposed to paprika, well, like with his Hungarian roots. Yeah, I want to do that too. But I also do want to go to Barton G. Okay. Because Barton G. Have you ever been to a Barton G. restaurant? So I haven't. But when I was reading the menu, it was obvious that it's very cheeky. Um, like. I, I've never been either. The lobster I, I conf- pop I tart. I confess, sure. it is lots like of tongue and cheek, super lots of- creative, crazy. Yeah. Is it why it's Kamikaze. like fan- fantasy <laughs> kind of cuisine? Right. What's going on at Barton G? So I think Barton the Barton G experience is best explained as just that it's it's theater, mm-hmm. food theater, um, and we've managed to put a, a presentation in place of a you know fine dining esque big white plate in in place of everything on every menu item that you get there. Um, you know, a little tongue in cheek, a little smoke and mirrors, then you get some smoke on some things, and some mirrors yeah. on another. Um, you know, I think the the food and the food is generally just global. Um, you know, big LA influence here in LA, big Miami influence in Miami. There's a couple of staples that neither place can really touch cuz just cuz they've they've tied so closely to the presentation pieces and they help define the signatures of of the restaurant group. Um, but at bottom line, I think it's a really good time. You know, I think it's yeah. it's fun. It's festive. Um, it's meant to inspire. It's kind of, you know, it's, it's a spectacle sorts. So some of the things you you get at the table and you're just like, oh, my gosh, this is insane. Why and how did they do this? And then some people may laugh. Some people don't get it. But, you know, it's very in your face. 
Um, Tell us some of the, uh, what are the LA dishes like that are like the classics? Are these things that you've created or like, do you have, you know, are you creating menus and? Yeah. So um, there's a handful of things that, you know, I mean, they're just, they're, they're playful foods, but grown up. So like you mentioned the pop tarts. Yeah. So we serve these things in like a retro style, like a hot pink or a pastel retro style toaster that you would have found on the counter 20, 30 years ago. So the toaster comes to the table? The toaster comes to the table. It hits the table. Um, and then you have like playful – it's like Pop-Tarts, right? But they're a little right. grown up. So we got like a fussy Gruyere cheese in there. We've made a bechamel from lobster stock and, you know, cream, fresh fiend herbs, and then big chunks of whole main lobster that were shucked earlier that day. So it's like grown Sounds up. Sounds terrible. But like really, <laughs> really, really gross. Um it's grown up, but it's meant to emit like nostalgia, like bringing out the kid. Are you always thinking of like crazy, th- like what's the next thing we can create here? We're constantly in R and D. Yeah, um, we can't, we can't not be, um, right? Because all those deadlines um, they creep up on you. you How know, often Barton. are you changing the menu? So we try to change the menu for seasonal. You know, the food we try to change two to three times a year, um, but in terms of the presentation pieces, we'll. we'll shoot to change out like 50, 60% of them at once a year. You know, so it's a large scale investment on the company side and it's kind of built into the program and seeing like, okay, you know, there are not many rest. I mean, there are not many restaurants that'll change out of like a plate set once a year, but we have to, you know, we have to be on our, on our toes and making sure that our, our, our clientele base, many of which are returning clients, just expecting to see the new and crazy Spartan two piece are, are getting that. So we're constantly, you know, we, we don't look at things in a home goods shop or in a even like a Home Depot or like a garden shop the same after having worked for this company. You just you walk in one of those places and you look at it and they're like, oh, maybe if I turn it upside down, I could put it on a plate or stick it on a table and present an interesting piece of food like that. Um, and I love it. I think you're I love bl- like people get their minds blown when they go to Barton yeah. Tree. They like all these things are happening. You mentioned smoke and like it's what's the crazy. craziest thing. That you've done. So, that I've done personally. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have like R&D meetings and brainstorming and stuff. And like a couple of years back, we were just throwing. I mean, sometimes it just starts with like throwing random words out. And somebody said lawnmower. And I was like, that's me. I got it. <laughs> I, got, I took that one. It's like improv. Yeah, a little bit. Mm-hmm. A little bit. Um, and then I find myself coming back from, you know, in a home improvement store with like electric lawnmower. I'm like pulling parts out and trying to get this thing to where it, it could potentially be safely placed on a table at the restaurant. And I figured it out. <laughs> so then we stuck a speaker in there. Um, so we have, you know, we keep a soundtrack, a rotating soundtrack of either um, a lawnmower like blaring in it. Um, or then we'll, we'll pick like songs that make sense for it. Like we, we sometimes we'll play like hot for teacher by Van Halen. Cause yeah. it's got the mm-hmm. start of yeah. this, the sound of them, which actually I think is a sample of a Ferrari or something. Yeah. But, um, and we'll serve like grass-fed beef or whatever, whatever inspires. Oh, that's us. hilarious. That's awesome. Yeah. So I do want to get back to the ingredient for the day. Um, you always like to reel us in. I do. That's that's my role here I like to on this take podcast. It out to the edge. Yep. And then you bring and I'm it right just like, back. Let's bring it back, John. So I love emailing the guests. I say this on like almost every every episode because. It's like this anticipation of what are they going to want to talk about. So when you said paprika, and you did mention that it was, you know, you your roots. So I guess tell us about like your the first time that you like your exposure, a memory. Was it like a grandparent or your mom? Yeah, I mean, I was 
born into that ingredient and that it was just there from the start. And so my parents both having emigrated from, from Hungary, um, I mean, it's a state, it goes beyond staple. It's like a necessary ingredient in the kitchen pretty consistently. Um, what I'm amazed by is how, how many different ways that Hungarians have managed to figure out how to use it, you know, um, born and raised in, in New York on the Upper East Side, which at the time and still has a various many elements of being like a little Hungary. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, but then also spending summers in Hungary, um, you know, with grandmas and, and aunts and uncles, cool. um, you know, being exposed to things that I would have never otherwise been exposed to in the city. Um, I was always the kid that came back from summer break, like, oh, where were you all summer? You know, I was like, oh, I don't know, I was watching a pig slaughtering and, you know, <laughs> dealing with all sorts of stuff yeah. out there. It's like, oh, really? Yeah, I mean, that's what we do out there. Um, you know, and I, and I think – you know, a lot of the time spent there was probably it was so food focused, and and um, you know, I, I probably got the bug back then for wanting to be in a food service business. But um, paprika is just one of those things is where like you start a meal, it's like all right, you're gonna go for it. Look, like, where are we gonna put it? Be a breakfast, lunch, or dinner? And how are we gonna utilize it? What is the cuisine of Hungary? Often mis- I can tell you what it's often misunderstood for, mm-hmm. and that's just being ultra-rich, ultra-heavy stews of animal proteins constantly. And, and, and it's not that. Um, also really rich, and I mean, it could be so vegetal. Um, it could be – I mean, it's inspired by um, the landscape there and produces some of the best vegetables that I've ever had. And and I'm now living in SoCal, right? Okay, maybe mm-hmm. it's a tough competition, um, also hyper seasonal. So like, you know, obviously the peppers, the chilies are like king to them. Right. Um, but funny thing in, in Hungarian paprika and, and paprika, they have, it's dual meaning. So they use, they use the word for the, the dehydrated and ground spice. And then they also use it for, um, like a sweet pepper, a fresh uh, sweet pepper. Yeah. Yep. Or, or like the bell, the bell variety, mm-hmm. the, the one that's not going to have too much of a kick. The paprika means pepper. Paprika means pepper, and yep. it also means the spice. Okay. And oh. is are there different types of paprika? Is there hot? Is there sweet? Is it my, mm-hmm. Right? I think. There's eight. There's, oh, wow. She did a little I bit did. of oh, wiki. Talk to us, Andrea. Types. Talk to us. There's eight different types of paprika. <laughs> yes. Um, they ranging from sweet to hot. Yep. The brighter the color, the hotter the paprika nice. is what i read at yeah. least but most of the time in in hungarian cuisine I, I, what for my reading was that it's mainly sweet is what is used i don't know if yeah. is that true i think generally yes yeah yeah they're going to go depending on what you're going to cook but i think generally the the main type is going to be like a sweet mhm um and they're not necessarily like what you might have researched I don't, they're not necessarily grades or mm-hmm. they're actually just different uses right. so like mm-hmm. half sweet half um and then they have one that's categorized as special and then that's like maybe if there is one grade like everything else might be just t- different subtle uses but then you have the ones that, the one thing that you would only ever use for like um sprinkling as a garnish or or placing on top of a food as as um as a raw element you want it to taste in, in its purest form without bringing out any of those flavors you want it to taste the best and then they would use that that special kind, right? So it has like more of like an assertive pepper flavor. Um, I would, yeah, I would say more vegetal than than um, sweet, or more, or, or yeah, more vegetal, more like almost almost citrusy. Yeah, kind of just like brighter, um, and those tend to be more bright in color 
and like that's what you would dust on your um uh, deviled eggs or, mm-hmm. or you know anything that you're going to eat raw what other where do you like to use your paprika where do i like to use mine yeah oh just i mean if any if our if our listeners are going to get anything away from this is is that i feel like you need to find some good stuff right find some like really you know quality stuff and then make it the focus of your dish at least so that you can experience that. I mean, it's good in so many things and is used so widely um, across so many cuisines as as a part or an element to the seasoning blend. I mean, you're talking from right right where we are here to the Middle East to, you know, across even this country and, and in barbecue and, and, and so many different things. Um, my only hope is, is that our listeners get to use it exclusively, say, as like the forefront. So I'm talking like three or four ingredients, right? Paprika being the focus and maybe the other ones being, um, you know, an animal protein, some garlic, a bay leaf and, and call it that and see that ingredient shine, you know? Um, so where do I, I use it like that often. And then of course I also use it in hand in hand day, day to day and, and any another seasoning blend that I want to create. Do you get a special paprika? I feel like I, I was going to ask, is there like a brand? I feel like there's one that has the Hungarian flag on the tin yeah, I've that got I've a, had in my house. I've got a gripe with that. Um, I don't know how long it's been, but but basically, uh, there there was an exporter um, from from a town in Hungary called called Seged that was known specifically for producing some of the best in in the country and hence the world. But um, basically, they were bought out. It was you know it, it got turned into like a monoball and 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 um, it. It kind of lost its value. So actually, you'll see it's like Hungarian style, and they're still able to slap the flag on there, but it may not even be produced there. But it's not the real deal, right? And not to say that you have to exclusively go out and look for Hungarian paprika, but but look for something that's good. Look for something that's got a, a fresh date on it. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know? sure. You know, it goes a long way. Yep. Um, you know, if it hasn't been sitting on a on a uh, grocery store uh, shelf or in your cupboard for a couple of years, it's probably going to be better than what you're used to. Very true. Um, oh, she doesn't have anything to say. The last so word, the with, last Andrea, word with Andrea, we've Marcus. stumped her. She's been stumped. I'm just thinking like, you know, there's two dish, like, you know, paprikash, goulash. Like what are, what are some other dishes that. So you talk about a global scale. Um, paprika is really, it's really tuned in for Spanish cuisine as well. Yeah. And they're. Um, Piemontone. Piemontone. And their dry style of charcuterie. Um, Hungarians have a whole line of incredible charcuterie that I think competes on the global scale. You know, be it, you're talking about, you know, France or or even the jamon. And, and and I think that it's it's so unique to it. A part of that reason might be the paprika that sure. they're using in it. Um, and some of it doesn't quite have the reach that some of those things do because it's elementally a little bit more to look at you know i'm although you know this day and age like if you go if you walk into bar Balud, let's say and you order the pig head terrain you're expecting to see you know pieces of ear and snout and whatever else all the good bits i think mm-hmm. um but no that's a very specific experience but walking into what the hungarians call like a hentesh or a, or like a delicatessen of that style when you see those things there might be a little bit less and it might be more intimidating to most people you know, I have something. Um, go ahead, Andrew. I'm going to interrupt you, John. Go right ahead. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Do it. So, Barton G., if someone yelled out the word paprika, 
what would you do? Meaning what? Like what dish would you make if in they the went dining room? Paprika. Paprika, like lawnmower. Oh. Like what would be your take on it? How would you well, present it? We've got such an eclectic group of customers. Like our clientele base is like all over the place. And it's been one of the challenges of creating food for that place is having the responsibility of putting food on a Barton G plate is being like, okay, you need to understand this somehow or you're not seeking this. You're seeking the experience. And we reel them in with the presentations. We hope that they come back with a great meal, um, food that they've enjoyed and, and things that they can understand. So, you know, I wouldn't go crazy. I wouldn't do anything like do like a head cheese sprinkled with paprika, but probably something like a pipier rod, you know, something like rich um, that's been stewed over a couple of hours, be it like chicken or whatever, but just like the reinforcing of those fresh peppers. And, you know, we know that we have got a lot of delicious peppers in SoCal with, with that seasoning. Um, you know, it, it, it's just hard to say that people just love that because it's, I mean, it's, it's standard, you know, I mean, it's, it's wholesome, it's comfort food, but it's also interesting. And when you see that ingredient at the forefront of that, you're like, oh, this is what this red, red, red flavored stew is supposed to taste like. Andrew, do you use paprika at home? I do. What do you do with it? Typically when I'm, I'm using it, um, in like rubs. So I'll use it for, you know, in ribs, uh, if I'm making like any type of, if I'm doing tacos, um, or like any type of Mexican food, typically I'm putting paprika. It's like kind of a, I feel like it's kind of like one of the first layers there, like the does base. Yeah. Does paprika go like harmonize with another spice or herb really well? You mentioned bay leaf, you know, as you were saying, Mexico, I was thinking oregano too. Like yeah. you know, are there are things that it kind of combines well Garlic. with. Well, I think, I think what's amazing about it is, is that it does, it acts like as a, maybe like a median or a binder for all yes. those things, like just something simple to help to bring it together and, and take some space in terms of the ratio there. Um, funny thing too, you guys mentioned Mexico, actually all, all chilies, all peppers, all, all that has come from this region of the world and was introduced along, along that time. We said 1500s, mm-hmm. right? It was introduced to Europe at that time, um, which would make sense as to why there are so many similarities to, you know, even um, that cuisine, that far east in Europe to what we're, what we're enjoying here um, now in modern day in Mexico, but also, um, you know, back when, back when they pulled it from there. Um, I think it's a, it's an incredible median to so many different other spices and blends. Um, it helps bring them together. I think that even, you know, on its own, it's incredible. But of course, that's what most people are doing is, is that they're using it in conjunction with other spices. Uh, uh, you mentioned the Spanish pimenton earlier. I love these, that Lavara, particularly the sweet one. I think it adds such a smokiness to dishes. And like I a like, richness. Yeah. And I combine that and just, in, you know, I don't want to say like hidden ways, but I feel like just adding it to anything does add a, that richness and a layer mm-hmm. of complexity and, a, and a, a, a certain smokiness, although I don't know that it's smoky. So it is smoked. Yeah. There are some that it are smoked. smoked and yeah. I, and, but I think you're right too. I think there are some that are just inherently a little bit smoky. Yeah. Like yeah. the pepper itself has yeah. a smokiness flavor profile? Yeah. I think so. Mm. Mm-hmm. I ha- It's been a while since I've had chicken paprikash. Is that something you will used to make growing up? And was that like a family tradition? Yeah, sure. How do you make chi- – what is chicken paprikash? So chicken paprikash is a stew of um, chicken – in my it's creamy, right? It's creamy, and I'll, I'll I'll get to it. There's um, 
there's like a different rue situation going on that you can't you can't officially call rue. I actually I don't know if there is even a word for it in English, but I'll tell you what it is in Hungarian. Yeah. It's called habarash. 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 Yeah, and that that's what essentially turns the the stock of the stew into like a nice thick and rich um, creamy paprika. Wait, hold on. What a is habarash? Hold on, hold on a second, Andrew. Will you take notes because I want you to cook this for me habarash. when we get back okay, to New York. Okay, so make a. Nice, clean, beautiful chicken stew. You start with your chicken, obviously, bone in, skin on, all the – because right in, in Hungary, yeah. that's what you would do. You want to go to the grocery store and, um, you know, grab up your thighs that are skinless, boneless. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, there are two schools. Are you going to sear it or are you just going to go straight into some liquid? These days, I would sear it. My, mm -hmm. my father, who was the cook in the house, would have never done that. He would have just gone right into a cold pot, but he would start sweating – um, onions and garlic, and then the bell pepper off on the side. And then, of course, um, to wake up the paprika, you're going to sweat that as well and to just kind of enliven it and, mm -hmm. and bring out those rich flavors. Um, and then stew them together. And then the habarash comes in towards, like, right towards the end. So, whereas, like, in a French kitchen, you could make your roux at the start of this whole process or even do um, what they would call the sangé, where you put where you put your uh, you put your flour onto your vegetables, and then that creates a roux in itself when you pour up the liquid, or you take like a cold brew and place it in. So the Hungarians, what they figured out um, is you can take a soured cream and just straight mix it with flour, and that is essentially habarash. And then you would temper some of that stew liquid into your um, flour and sour cream mixture. Rarely do you use cream like straight cream in savory cooking in Hungarian cuisine. Um, and then once that's tempered slightly, then you go then pour it back into your stew, bring to a simmer, and your dish is complete. Given mm. that your your you that know, sounds good. All the components it's, were cooked properly. It's been too long since I've had yeah. that. You got yeah. that written down? I, I did, yeah. Okay, I can't wait. Serve it over like a fresh dumpling, like a spatzel we call mm. uh no I love it. Yeah, spatzel. Oh. So good. I haven't so had how, when was the last time you had that, John? I'm spetzel. saying it's been oh spatzel. Yeah, it's been a while. I love it. Yeah. So good. Where do you get Good Hungarian food in LA. Oh, I haven't found it yet. You haven't? No. <laughs> okay. I, there's uh, there have been some places, unfortunately, so, and even in my tenure here, they've closed. Um, but I I have yet to see one as of present day. I have to do some research. I know there's like a, there's like a deli that'll serve um the goods and so imported goods, um salamis, be it. If they're produced here, like in New Jersey, there's a large production facility for um, Hungarian salamis, or if they're being directly imported. So there's one of those in Burbank, I want to say. Okay. But in terms of like a legit restaurant, I, there's there's one that I know of. Do you cook at home? Yeah. Okay. If I were to go to your home and open your pantry, what five ingredients would I always find? Five? Always? Your five pantry staples. Oh, I wish you'd prep me for this. No, I would have gone and looked. We want you to be spontaneous. Yeah, I want to like- Well. I'm a, I'm a restaurant chef, so I'm always in the restaurant. My wife's been doing all the cooking at home. Um, you find some quality breadcrumbs. Okay. I think like that's that. important. Um, you'll definitely find some quality Parmesan cheese, like grana or, or you know, straight parm. Wait, time out on the floor, because I this is you mentioned something that has my mind spinning, and I run into this often. Where do you get quality breadcrumbs? Can you buy something off the shelf? Do you have to go to a bakery? Uh, it helps. I struggle with it. It yeah. helps. Or or make them with that or panko. I like. Yeah. I mean, panko to me is like the only mm -hmm. store bought up I will mm -hmm. buy. Mm -hmm. um, you'll find some like exclusively like Jewish Israeli stuff. 
And like mm-hmm. they have actually really good breadcrumbs. They'll have like um, interesting. Yeah, they'll have sesame seeds built right mm. in. No need to mix. Okay. Those are for like a for like a nice pan seared cutlet. Cutlet. Mm. Yeah. Um. Uh, what's in the back there? Oh, you find some like cold toro or some quality fish sauce. Yeah. Can't just can't do without the anchovies. You know. Um. I'm trying to put. I'm trying to push that with the kids. I'll sneak it in little bits and places here and there and see how they respond. How do they respond? I mean, it's a crapshoot. They haven't caught you. It depends on how hard I pour it. (laughs) They haven't caught you yet. How much Colotor is going in there? (laughs) Right. Um, What does that get me at? Three? Um, Mm -hmm. Let's see. What else? What else is in there? Um, What's got to be in there? I love... I love keeping like a nice garlic chili crunch or like Mm -hmm. an EXO or something like that. Sure. Um, Just because I need something to slather over whatever else, whatever's managed to make it past my wife and kids for leftovers Mm -hmm. when I come home at night. Um, And then maybe just some quality olive oil. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Great answer. Well, I think this has been a really unique episode. I love it. I'm, I'm excited. And I want that lobster pop tart. We got, yeah, Barton G's so crazy. Wild. We didn't even get into talking about Mr. Barton G himself. Barton is the character. He's incredible. I can imagine. I can only imagine. That guy's creative. Like, it scares me. Yeah. Know? I mean, uh, is he like I mean, Willy he was, Wonka? Is he like the Wizard of Oz? Well, you know, he pioneered um, Miami's uh, like catering event scene like nobody else has ever had. And now he's got like a full scale event and, 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 um, you know, production company that puts up, you know, things nationwide. So they ship all over. They've got these huge accounts talking about, you know, tens of thousands of people for like, you know, festivals, large scale gatherings. Um, but really like the restaurants is beating heart, you know, it's like what keeps them going and, and, and the adventures and all the, all the creative play there. But, um, basically he was just throwing these wild parties in Miami and all, you know, everyone around him was like, you have to turn this into a brick and mortar. You just have to, you know, and that's kind of where a lot of that inspiration came from. Wow. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for joining us. It's been great. Yeah. I've learned so much about paprika. It's got me excited about paprika and curly parsley at the same time. Bring it back. Bring it back. Well, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. Appreciate it. Here we are in New York City with one of my favorite old... I've known you... How long have we known each other, Lior? I'd say good 15, 16 years it's at this point. It's been a long time. Maybe 20. We Who met knows? at Restaurant Danielle when you were working there. Class of 02. Class of 02. <laughs> that, that's, uh, that's 22 years, by the way, or 21 years, I should say, if my math's correct. Yeah. So we are talking today, Andrea, with one of the foremost spice experts in the world. The Spice King, the Spice... I, I was going to try... Spice Whisperer? Yes. I don't know what you want to call him, but his name is Lior Lev Sirkars, and his business is called La Boite. And Lior is going to tell us all about his business, but he is the spice supplier, the spice guru to most of the great chefs of the United States. Is that, am I saying that right? Yeah. I mean, thank you, A. Great to be here. Um I didn't start in the spice business, so but that's what I do fully for the last, I'd say, 15 years. You're a chef that was by be trade. My question, I'm, a, yeah. I'm a chef. Um, a lot of people forget about that. I, I started cooking in a catering company in Israel and then went to the Paul Bocuse Institute in Lyon. Spent two years there, stayed in uh, France for five years total cooking, 
moved to New York in 02 to join Danielle Boulou at Restaurant Danielle. So I, it, this year will mark my 30th year in the kitchen. I just now so happened that I cook and trade spices. So I'm kind of on both sides of the stove. How did you get into trading spices? I always had fascination with ingredients and markets uh, in, in, we, in supermarkets, which is my one of my favorite places to go is a good supermarket. Um, I think the main change was France. In, in 99, I did an internship in Brittany for a very well-known chef by the name of Olivier Olinger, who cooks French cuisine, lots of seafood, primarily seafood, but with spices that I've never even heard before. And I was blown away by how this guy is pulling it off. And he was very smart. He kind of introduced me into the idea of, of spices and what it means. Luckily, internet was just at its earlier days, so you had to do a lot of reading. Uh, and you discover through that politics and agriculture and, and trade and history um, and then understanding that cooking would probably be the last thing that you should be concerned of is like, how do you apply it, but where it comes from. You know, everybody talks about sourcing and farm to table, yet spices for many years are the last thing that you just grab on a shelf and you don't even think where they came from. So that's kind of what got me excited and also the big frustration of working with amazing chefs at home or in restaurant that were buying amazing products, but were using such bad quality spices. And so I set myself yeah. to change that. What, what make? Go ahead, Andrew. Sorry, I was going to say, what makes a quality spice? Uh, the same that you'd say about a, a produce or a protein. It's um, who grew it, where they grew it, and what happened to it once it was harvested. So since it, it is a produce, it's just a dry produce. It's how it was captured at its peak and how it was dried, transported, sanitized, because that's part of what we have to do. And also kept over time. So um, on one hand, you say, oh, it's dry, so nothing can happen to it. A lot can happen because of the length of time. While a fresh produce, you, you'll take a lot of care. I mean, if, if you take care of your produce, and you'll make sure that it doesn't go bad. So the, those are, to me, the steps is where it's from, who grew it, the terroir, where it was grown, that plays a huge impact. On, on the quality of the spices. So you're go are you going to these places trying the, the the produce before it becomes dried and then making those decisions? Yeah. So I did a little bit of reverse engineering. I, I only knew spices as a dry ingredient. You know, and when I started this career 16, 17 years ago, I then went to look at the the origin and how it is it is unfair to taste uh, a flower of cumin, which I hope you'll get to do one day. It is mind-blowing. However, I can never use that flour, so I have to think of the result once it's dry. Um, but understanding the process and how it's grown and irrigated or non-irrigated, so is it the distress agriculture? So that's what I do. I try to visit as many producers as I can, including, by the way, processing facilities of spray drying and dehydrating and, and all of that. So I feel like we could talk to him for like a really long <laughs> yeah, time, no, it's John. It's a fascinating like, subject. I am so, like, I have so many questions. And it's but exciting. I'm, yeah. I feel like you should have your own TV show, like the Spice Hunter traveling around yeah. the world I, and doing all this stuff. If you know anybody, let them, I'm yeah. ready. Netflix, if you are listening. <laughs> so today we're talking specifically about paprika, um, which is a spice that everybody, you know, is probably familiar with, but probably hasn't spent a lot of time thinking about where it came from, what it actually is. And the different types. Yeah. So talk to us about paprika and 
you know, what is paprika? It's that red powdered <laughs> yeah. spice. So probably found in, in a lot of households and in restaurants. Funny enough, my mother hates paprika. So it's like, it's the one thing that drives her crazy. No chicken paprika. paprikash at your nope, house? Not at home, even though she's born to a, a Hungarian mother. Uh, interesting. Uh, nope, that's not part of the repertoire. Um, I think paprika, a bit like turmeric, Mm-hmm. has this connotation of being a, a coloring agent. People add it for color. Um, I happen to be colorblind, um, not extreme black and white, but color doesn't play a role when I select spices. It's ironic because the industry has criteria of color. So when you talk to a lot of vendors and suppliers, they're asking you what grade of color you're looking for, how deep red, how light, and I was like, I honestly don't care. If it smells good and tastes good, then that's where we can have a legit conversation. Is there a specific pepper that is used to make paprika? Is there a pepper called paprika or is paprika just ground pepper? I think paprika means pepper, right? So yes, and there's also a variety of of sweet peppers. So no heat level. So in the the, the terms of the Scoville uh, rate, there'll be zero. Wow. Uh, Where it can go to the hot paprika. So same variety, just with more heat level, you could go to the smoked paprika, what would be called in Spain, pimenton, uh, where they have regulation in terms of how much oak per kilos of pepper you need to qualify to become a pimenton de la vera or other uh, designations. Okay, so I just learned something. So pimenton de la vera, which I love from Spain, Mm -hmm. I love the dulce, the sweeter Uh one, and I use a little bit of the hot, but I find it's got a lot of heat to it. That's paprika. It is. Interesting. So in Spain, they get a bit offended when you say that it's smoked paprika. They said it's pimenton. Uh-huh. That's what it is. Uh, and they use slightly different varietals uh, than the, the Hungarian one or, or uh, stuff that will come from the Far East. Uh, the treatment is really what makes it is the really am- amount of oak. And you're only allowed to use oak uh, by definition, by legislation to smoke it. And then whether it's the hot varietal or the... And when you look at Spanish cuisine, you find very little other chilies and you find very little black pepper used at all. So the the heat component actually comes from hot pimenton. That's the source of heat. Is it like champagne? Like pimenton can only like come from – because we sell pimenton. It comes in like the beautiful blue and yellow tin (laughs) or red tin, whatever. And then we also sell smoked paprika. So, you know, I guess – what distinguishes those two? So pimenton would be primarily something that comes out of Spain. And within Spain, there are a couple of regions that were able to write, if you will, a, a guidebook or guideline, the same way that you'd have with the AOC for wines in, in, in France and in Italy. Uh, so they wrote a guidebook or guidelines that if you want to adhere to them, then you're allowed to have that little cute sticker on that red tin. Um, so De La Vera being one of the more known regions for that. Uh, but you'll find pimenton everywhere around Spain from smaller producer who don't want to be part of it or cannot afford to be part of it. And then you have smoked paprika that could be produced pretty much everywhere. Ideally, it was actually smoked. And again, not to be in there like the, the, the guy who brings the shocking news, you will find some less nice people just taking regular paprika and mixing it with either smoke powder, liquid smoke. Um, the good news is that it's very easy to detect uh, because the, the scent sends a bit artificial of, of these products. So if you want to buy the real thing, uh, buy Spanish, pimenton. 
Um, and if you want to buy paprika, there's many other options. But when it comes to pimenton, I go to Spain. That's my go-to. Right? Same. <laughs> I, lo- I, mean, I love that product. It's so, it, I mean, it's delicious. I find that it enhances, yeah. it adds a certain depth of flavor and smokiness, obviously. But it's not like things. overpowering smoky. No. It I really just, hits a yeah, lot of it, notes. It's that. It's the fact that it adds a savory component, even if you're not cooking meat. And as somebody who eats primarily at home, primarily vegetables and grains, and I love meat and fish, I just at home we eat a lot of vegetables. So that's my kind of meat component. Also, living in a small apartment without a grill, which hurts a lot. I want to talk a little bit about some of your special spice blends that you make, because you have a great relationship with a chef like Eric Repair. Do you create the blends and? present them to the chef or does someone like Eric say to you, you know, Hey, Lior, I want to have, you know, a spice with a certain kind of flavor profile. And then you collaborate with him on it. How, how are those spice blends created? Cause they're amazing. Thank you. Uh, we usually start with a single ingredient. So just presenting our, our partners, uh, chefs, pastry chefs, beer brewers, distillers and whatnot with the raw ingredients, so they have an understanding what the palate, if you will, mm-hmm. that they can work with. And then as they get comfortable, uh, either they have a, an idea about a dish that they want to put together, and then they will leave it up to me. Some of them, Eric included, have very specific ideas of what the ingredients will be. Sometimes we will get uh, a chef coming to us with their own recipe and saying, I want to make it better. Mm-hmm. So I've been using average ingredients, what can you offer to really take it to the next level? It's a very interesting conversation. The beauty of it is that even when we make a custom blend for a chef, um, we then offer it to everybody else. So it's nice to see how other people interpret uh, that same idea that started with one thing to many other dishes. That's nice. It is. It's, It's a great conversation. I think that what allows me to do it is the fact that I've been in a kitchen for 30 years now and I, I can have a valid argument why we should or shouldn't do something or why something is better than that and how they're going to apply it um, and not just getting um, just the result of this is what it costs and this is how you can get it. Do you feel like the spice world, like people have changed? Again, I feel like growing up, I feel like there was a decent amount. Of, at first, I think there was a lot of dried spices in grandma's pantry or my parents' pantry. <laughs> I mean, I hate to say it, but- Because there wasn't I, a lot of fresh herbs being used back then. But like, if you think of paprika when I was a kid, I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is deviled eggs. Like- Oh, yeah. Oh, know, a little sprinkle, like, sure. Yeah. And I think my mom had this paprika for like my entire childhood. <laughs> right. <laughs> like oh, that's 18 a, years. That's a great thing. We should talk about yeah, that. Yeah, like, like shelf are, life. Talk to us about like, what is the responsible- Restaurant or home chef, how do they handle their spices? Like, what are the what are the do's and the don'ts of how the spice they do world? or how they should do? Yeah, how <laughs> yes. th- tell us the, the what they should be doing and what they should not be doing as well. I think that the same way that you do your daily uh, walking inventory at the end of the night, or if you're a home cook and you're planning your you know trip to the supermarket or your online trip to the supermarket. I wouldn't say on a daily basis, but at least on a weekly basis, just a little check on what's happening in your pantry in terms of, of spices, or hopefully you have a spice shelf or a spice drawer. 
and also labeling, just purely labeling your spices in terms of where and when did you buy them. Interesting. That's a great tip. Uh, keeping in mind that, you know, there's really no expiration date. I don't know of anybody who got sick out of an old spice. However, at some point, it's like cooking with sand, and I don't know that that's a great ingredient. It just tastes like nothing. It smells like nothing. We recommend about a year to a year and a half from the day um, you know you purchase it to try to use it. Okay, that's pretty good. And, and if you haven't, then just stop using it. Don't buy it again. We recommend even to our chef partners to buy smaller amount and more frequently. Again, unless you're going through X amount of pounds a week, then of course, by all means, buy a lot. But as you get going into this journey of spices, smaller quantities, more often, label them in terms of date, see what they have, put the lid back on, avoid you know any wet components going into them, um, and, and just visually evaluate. If something doesn't look right there, then you probably shouldn't be using it. Are there spices that consumers and chefs in restaurants should be buying whole versus ground? No, I'm I'm from the, you know, uh, side of the camp that says, you know, as long as you buy good quality and it's easy to use, use it. If you're buying whole black pepper because you were told for many years by your chefs or, or that it's better freshly ground, but you never grind them, then what's the point? So if you can get a good pre-ground product that's easier to use, then go for it. I salute to anybody who has the time and patience to toast and grind at home or in a restaurant. The reality is that we don't necessarily have time to do it. Um, nobody's expecting you to buy whole cinnamon and grinding them. So what's making you buying ground cinnamon and turmeric and then saying, oh, when it comes to pepper, I only buy. Now, there is a alteration out there. It's unfortunate. It's part of the food supply chain with many other things. It's better to buy whole, you know what you're buying. You know, we've had instances of hearing in the past about olive pits finding their way into black pepper, food coloring going into sumac. It's out there. So just be responsible, you know. I think I'm one of those people. And I, I now I have to like reevaluate myself <laughs> because there are spices that I buy ground and there are spices where I'm like, nope, I, like nutmeg or black pepper even. Like I only I'm buy with you, 100%. whole. 100%. So, but I, cinnamon, I buy ground. Yeah. So, you know what, you're right. Like what is really the difference Where do between, you draw that line? Exactly. What last, my last question, is there a, let's not talk about saffron, but is there a king of spices? Is there something that you see that is like the ultimate spice? Something you've traveled around the world to find? I think there's quite... A few, I mean, cardamom, which I have a big fascination and love for cardamom. That again is, it's out there, but do people use cardamom? I don't know. Outside of cookies during the holiday season, I use cardamom year round. It's it's one of my go-to spices. Um, vanilla, yeah. uh, which I'm in the midst of a very interesting uh, project with a company that ages vanilla for our specification. Right. Uh, based on AI technology and, wow. and large dehydrators. So we're working on the Boite vanilla that will have our profile. Um, peppercorns are always a great fascination and source for travel. Chilies, again, uh, those are uh, part of what I like to. I, I like saffron. I'm, I'm a very honest person. I don't use a lot of saffron. We use it in our blends. Uh, I appreciate a good dish with a good saffron, but if you'd ask me about my five go-to, 
it's not on my list. <laughs> I'm so it's so this great so to talk about because we don't. I feel like people are always talking about people in the food world. They're talking about olive oil. They're talking about vinegar. They're talking about meats and fish and all these things. And I don't think there's enough conversation happening about spice. Obviously, yeah. this is the world you live in, but I don't think there's enough thought. People need to embrace it, it more. It's so much, yeah. so important to the cooking. Mm-hmm. It's I, like salt, you know, it's as much as important as the salt that mm-hmm. you It put, breaks my food. heart to go to places that would serve amazing steak or fish or vegetable and then it comes to salt. They're like, really? Yeah. You don't want to make a better, you have this crazy expensive Japanese knife and a, a wood board from who knows where. And the apron was sewn by 16 people and it's hot couture. And then your salt, it's like the, you know, you cannot hide behind it. And so is it good? Yeah, it's good. But once you switch, you're like, oh, what have I been doing all these years? And even if you, you know, that, that cliche of the cracked black pepper over, sure, amazing. I'm all for it. Can you just put good pepper right. in your pepper mill? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it makes an impact. Uh, well, this is awesome. This has been amazing. We got to have you back on to talk about more spices. Anytime. Because it's Anytime so we do a spice episode, I want Lior to be the, <laughs> the vendor guest. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Lior. Thank it's you. It's been so great. We could Pleasure talk speaking for with you. hours, literally. literally. <laughs> I have more questions. I had but... many more. I wanted to know about any trips you've taken because you the spice trade goes into some very you know remote corners of the globe right i mean have you ever had any experience that was like frightening or excitingly you know aside from dying in india in a car ride like because the traffic is like insane sure i thought that was the last day on earth or you know going to some back alleys in istanbul just in in searching for some orfa chili and eating something. And sometimes it's eating something as like, I don't know what tomorrow is going to look like. You know, I'm, I'm going to take one for the team here. Yeah. Just, mm-hmm. you know, I think that as, as chefs, as people in the, the curiosity is, is a key factor in this craving. You know, I travel a lot with people and it's five to six places a night where you eat a bite here and a bite there and mm-hmm. a drink here and a drink there. It's the people and it's like, some people go to the gym, I go out. You know, that's that's my training. <laughs> that's great. And all those exciting, like, spice bazaars around the world. Like the Shook in Israel and, yeah. like, you know, these, like, open-air markets. Istanbul yeah. where they've got that spice yeah. market. And That's my current fascination. Yeah. It's the upcoming book about the Middle East. So it's called A Middle Eastern Pantry. It's really celebrating. We're putting, I mean, spices are in there, but it's really celebrating the pantry as a concept dried legumes and and preserved items and pickles and dried cheese products. So it's really... I feel like we should ask him the question, John. He just said it. Lior, if if we're to open your pantry, what are five items that you must have in your pantry at any one time? Olive oil is number one. Right. I pour tremendous amount of olive oil. And is it your father, your grandfather so, uh, who makes? My, my dad makes your olive dad. oil in Israel. Yeah. Uh, I'm a big fan. Uh, limited production, really beautiful. Not because it's my dad, but it's it's it happens to be very good. Olive oil for sure. Spices as a category. I cannot yeah. see myself cooking without uh, spices. I'm a huge vinegar fan. Yeah. It's it's only been 10, 15 years. I growing up in Israel, vinegar was distilled. I have much more appreciation for uh, vinegars. Hot sauce. What kind Big, of hot sauce? A variety. Okay. I'm not going to name any names. I'm still exploring. Um, and so I haven't found like my must have, but hot sauce is a concept. 
uh, in their tahini. That's that's like the the Israeli mayonnaise or the the Middle Eastern yeah. mayonnaise or peanut butter, whatever. I think we named five already. That's perfect, yeah. and that's yeah. a great list. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank Thanks. you so much. Thanks this again. has been amazing. So fun. thank you. Thank Thanks you. for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Ingredient Insiders. Follow us on Instagram at Ingredient Insiders. You can find the products we discussed on today's episode at chefswarehouse.com or at your favorite specialty retailer.